Chapters four, five, and six of the Interrupted Kiss by Richard Marsh. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter four, Inspector Falcon. There could be no doubt as to how John Culver had come to his death, even had Doctor Banyard's pronouncement on the subject been less assured. He had been struck on the head with the corner of a small iron cash box. The blow had killed him. There was the box on the floor within a foot of where he lay, to prove it, with his blood on one of the corners. Great force had been used, more than was necessary. He was an old man, in bad health. As Dr. Banyard put it, the action of his heart was so uncertain that almost anything might have produced death. The mere shock of discovering that he was being robbed would probably have been sufficient, and there would have been no murder. He had been found in the room which was called the library, though practically the only books which it contained were some treatises on the law of debt, on whose dicta he had been too wise a man to lean. On the shelves, instead of books, were iron boxes. Three of these lay open on the floor. What had been taken from them was not easy to determine. Probably something, though more had been left behind. One of the boxes was nearly filled with jewelry and valuable bric-a-brac done up neatly in parcels with names outside. Queerly enough, from the policeman's point of view, the contents seemed to have been left intact. A second had been turned upside down, with the apparent intention of facilitating the inspection of the papers with which it had been filled. But it seemed that it was from the third that most had been taken. The inference was that the thief was looking for some especial booty. On opening the third box, he had seen it staring him in the face and was about to make off with it when Culver, coming in, had caught him in the act. Having gone so far, he did not hesitate to go a little farther, and having disposed of the intruder, made off with his spoils. That, at least, was the conclusion to which the police came. The village constable, George Wilkins, was the first representative of authority to come upon the scene. Before long, he was joined by his official superior, Inspector Falcon, from the local town of Branksome. Country police are not, as a rule, the wisest of men, but they are sometimes apt to make up in dogmatism for what they lack in wisdom. Inspector Falcon had not been in the house many minutes before he knew about everything. He could have reproduced the crime almost to the smallest detail. He had the exact hour at which it had taken place, the motive, even the criminal, all quite pat. In Mr. Culver's bedroom his watch had fallen from a small table which stood beside his bedside, and had stopped at eighteen minutes past two. Tyrell testified that it was his master's invariable custom to put his watch upon that table before he got into bed. Inspector Falcon inferred that the old gentleman, disturbed by a noise in the night, had gone down to see what had caused it. Consciously or not, touching the table, he had knocked off the watch and the fall had stopped it. The inspector decided that the murder had taken place within a very short time of the watch having been stopped. He was supported by the doctor's admission that it was quite possible that John Culver had been dead since twenty minutes past two. In that way he arrived at the exact time. The library was a good-sized room. It had three windows which ran nearly from the floor to the ceiling. Like all the windows in the house they opened outwardly. One of them had been found open. On the flower-bed without there were the footprints of someone who had alighted heavily. They had made deep incisions in the soil, as if someone had sprung through the window. They could be traced right across the lawn, which, owing to recent rain, was soft and susceptible to the least impression. And even across a flower-bed beyond, as if their owner, in his haste, had gone, blundering in the darkness, heedlessly over it. In Walter Palgrave's deserted bedroom were found a pair of boots which fitted these footprints to a nicety. 
Inspector Falcon inferred that, caught by John Culver in the act of committing robbery, the thief had passed without hesitation from the lesser crime to the greater, and then had fled through the night to escape the consequences of what he had done. So he arrived at the criminal. Whatever had prompted Walter Palgrave's departure from Timberham, it did seem that he had started unexpectedly and in haste. There was the state of his room to show it. He might have taken somebody else's property with him, but his own personal belongings he had left behind. Apparently he had gone away, according to Inspector Falcon, between two and three o'clock in the morning in a dinner jacket suit without an overcoat and hatless. So far as was ascertainable, his other garments were still in his room. He had brought a suitcase with him from town. There was the case, there were the clothes he had been wearing on his arrival. The odds and ends the maid remembered to have seen unpacked. According to her, she had done the room when he went down to dinner, and she was sure it was precisely as she had left it. Mr. Earle might have seen him go into his room. He had touched nothing in it if he had. That she was prepared to swear. On the dressing-table, among other papers, was a letter from a firm of money-lenders in town. It was characteristic of Palgrave that he should have left communication of such a delicate nature and of such importance where practically anyone could see it. It was a very brusquely worded intimation to the effect that they would stand no more nonsense, and that if, before a certain specified date, he did not come to a satisfactory arrangement, they would, without further notice, take steps which he would find most unpleasant. The letter was signed, Tuckerings, the name by which the firm was known, too well known. There were no more notorious usurers in England. The accident that such a letter should have been found in that house was rendered more remarkable by the fact that it was commonly understood that Palgrave's host, John Culver, was Tuckerings. In how many concerns of the kind he had a controlling hand, probably no one knew but the old gentleman himself, but there were sufficient reasons for associating him with the most unsavory of them all. Palgrave had received no invitation. He had sent a telegram to say that he was coming. Mr. Culver had opened and read the telegram while Tyrell was waiting to learn if there was any answer. He had read it twice, then had laughed ungenially. Old Culver's cheery laugh, as it was satirically called, had been famous for more than one generation. Mr. Walter Palgrave telegraphs to inform me that he proposes to favor me with his company in my house tonight. See that a room is prepared for him. As Mr. Earle and Mr. Harmar will be here, we shall be a merry party. Those, Tyrell reported, were the words he had uttered when he had read the telegram a second time. When he spoke of a merry party, he laughed again. What he meant by the allusion, Tyrell did not know. Inspector Falcon inferred that Palgrave owed Tuckering's money, that he had come down to ask John Culver to give him time or to prefer some similar request, that Culver had refused, that, grown desperate in consequence, Palgrave formed some wild scheme to get hold of the proofs of his indebtedness, which he knew that his host had in his possession, that Culver caught him in the act of putting his scheme into execution, and there was the motive. Intentionally or not, some members of the household lent color to the inspector's inferences, making it very clear to himself that he was on the right track. He held a sort of informal court of inquiry at which everybody was asked questions. It came out that there had been what was in all probability a stormy scene between Palgrave and his host. Everyone agreed that they had not seemed on good terms at dinner, and were with difficulty prevented from saying things to each other which were not of a complimentary kind. Something else came out, that, after dinner, a good deal had been drunk. It was not easy for the inspector to get all the information he required. 
that Mrs. Harmar and Miss Graham, Mr. Harmar and Rupert Earle, and even Tyrell, were unwilling witnesses, was obvious enough. The inspector was good enough to inform them that, while he respected their wish to keep silent on all subjects on which silence should be kept, it would be better for all parties concerned that they should tell everything which, sooner or later, would have to be told, possibly under more disagreeable conditions than the present. His little exordium had not, however, the effect of inducing volubility. What he did get from them was not got easily. He did not attempt to conceal from them that, in his opinion, they were keeping from him as much as they possibly could. It seemed that, on the preceding evening, after dinner, Mr. Culver had retired alone to the library. Miss Graham went with Mr. Earle for a stroll, while Mrs. Harmar had gone with her husband and Walter Palgrave to the billiard-room. Apparently, the only person who saw John Culver afterwards was Tyrell, who, according to custom, went to him at ten o'clock to inquire if anything more was wanted. Mr. Culver, who did not seem to be in the best of tempers, informing him that there was not, told him to go to bed at once, expressly forbidding him to wait up for the others. Tyrell admitted that he did not go to bed at once. Shortly afterwards, he heard the old gentleman go upstairs and bang his bedroom door. He himself went about eleven. Miss Graham and Mr. Earle had come in long before then, and the two ladies had retired. Tyrell looked in at the billiard-room before he went. The three gentlemen were playing cards. Mr. Palgrave asked him if there were any more whiskey in the house. A decanter nearly full of whiskey and another about half full of brandy had been taken into the billiard-room shortly after dinner. The whiskey decanter was empty. Tyrell refilled it. When he went into the billiard-room in the morning he saw that both decanters were empty. Apparently the three gentlemen between them had disposed of practically two bottles of whiskey and half a pint of brandy. Messrs. Earle and Harmar declared that when they went to bed about two, the whiskey decanter was quite half full, and the brandy had not been touched. How both decanters came to be found empty, they did not understand. They admitted that, though not intoxicated, Mr. Palgrave had had enough to drink. "'I am afraid,' observed the inspector when he had made an end of asking questions, "'that if Mr. Palgrave does not put in an appearance very soon, and explain several things which badly need explaining,' He'll find himself in an uncomfortable position, very uncomfortable indeed. I can quite understand the wish of his friends to screen him, but, from the evidence before me, it strikes me that we shan't have to look very far for the guilty party. When Messrs. Earle and Harmar were alone, they looked at each other oddly. Rupert Earle laughed out loud. Edwin Harmar indulged in what might be described as a wry smile. Where, he demanded. Can you find a finer natural idiot than a country policeman? Earl laughed again. Ye whales and little fishes, what beats me is where do they get em? Do they stick in an advertisement, wanted a fool to represent the strong arm of the law? If that's the method, it proves that advertising brings what's wanted. Mrs. Harmar said to Miss Graham as they were crossing the hall, I want to speak to you. Come to my bedroom. When they were in the bedroom, she shut the door. It was some seconds before she showed any inclination to enter on the subject to which she had alluded. Miss Graham was standing by the open window with her face rigid and set. Mrs. Harmar pretended to put some feminine trifles into their proper places. She was arranging some ribbons when she spoke. Elsie, do you believe that Walter Palgrave did it? It seemed as if her tone was almost studiously careless in striking contrast to the other's passionate intensity. Claire, do I believe? I wish I could. 
that rather suggest a kindly thought for Walter. You know what I mean. Elsie, you and I must understand each other. It seems that there's going to be a coroner's inquest and all sorts of horrid things. You and I may be wanted to give evidence. Claire! Edwin did think of taking both of us far, far away, but it seems that that would never do. They might think all sorts of dreadful things of us. Of course, if they want me in the witness box, though I don't see what's the use, because I know absolutely nothing. Nor I. Then that's understood. Under all circumstances, we know nothing. Nothing. The girl echoed the word with her hands tightly clenched and her face turned away. Presently she spoke again. Mrs. Harmar was still busy with her ribbons. Suppose they find him. In that case we may have to come to a fresh understanding. Do you think they'd do anything to him? I have had no actual experience of the working of the law, as you know, but I rather fancy that there's no telling what the law will do. If Inspector Falcon represents it, it looks as if the law would hang him. Claire! Contrary to what I believe is the usual opinion, I am inclined to think that men can be even greater fools than women. Take Walter Palgrave, the most charming of men and the biggest simpleton. He probably blames our dear uncle for everything, but if it hadn't been uncle, it would have been another. He was bound to be devoured by someone. He is one of those fools who have money who are made for men who have brains. Born with a silver spoon in his mouth, he might have made for himself a great career, instead of which he's wandering about the world in a dinner jacket with the police at his heels. If they catch him. As I've already said, then we may have to come to a fresh understanding, but we'll wait until they do. If Inspector Falcon adequately represents the police, I should say he's in no danger. I hope, Elsie, you're not going to make an idiot of yourself. In what way? I trust. You must excuse my putting it coarsely. You're not going to jilt Rupert Earle. Do you think I could marry him? You said you would. Last night. You love him. Now? Now? You're not the sort of girl who can stop loving a man to order. Even if what you say is true, you wouldn't advise me to marry him. You couldn't. Who is it says morality is a question of degrees of latitude? I believe in some parts of America all gentlemen carry a gun. They did as recently as yesterday. Not long ago I heard Uncle say that he knew a woman, an American woman, a nice American woman, whose husband had used his gun quite a deal. He himself did not know just how much. Uncle said she was the happiest wife he had ever met, and her husband was devotion itself. Contrary to the received tradition, I don't think it's easy for any woman to care about any man, but if she does care for one man, that's all she need care about. I don't agree with you. You do. That's your feeling even more strongly than it is mine. You care for Rupert Earle as you'll never care for anyone else. If you won't let him make you his wife, you'll be a sorry woman all your life. Then I'll be a sorry woman. Chinese tortures wouldn't make me marry Rupert Earle. I'd sooner kill myself a thousand times. Miss Graham rushed out of the room before her cousin had time to speak another word. Mrs. Harmar, left alone, with a whimsical smile, surveyed the ribbons which she had been so neatly arranging. She proposed to herself rather a singular problem. I wonder if Edwin were not my husband, if I would marry him, now. All at once she laid herself downward on the bed, and without any apparent reason she began to cry. Chapter 5 
the will which was produced and the will which wasn't. The tragedy occurred on Friday night. The coroner commenced his inquest on the following Tuesday. John Culver was buried on the Thursday. It looked at first as if a Mr. Fincham, who had acted as a sort of confidential clerk, and Isaac Lazarus a solicitor, would be the only mourners. But almost at the last moment Mrs. Harmar induced her husband to go, and at Harmar's suggestion Rupert Earl went to keep him company. The idea, Earl told him, of my figuring as a mourner at John Culver's funeral is something more than the height of the ridiculous. You've as much reason to mourn as I have, was Harmar's retort. A great crowd was at the grave, drawn, doubtless, for the most part by vulgar curiosity, though among them there were some, not friends, John Culver had no friends, but chiefly neighbors who wished to show by their presence sympathy on so tragic an occasion. Whether the sympathy was intended to be shown to the one who had gone or to those who were left was doubtful. After the funeral there assembled in the morning-room at Timberham four persons. Mrs. Harmar and Miss Graham, as representing John Culver's only known relations, Edwin Harmar, as the husband of one of the ladies, and Isaac Lazarus, as the man of law. Rupert Earle had been asked to be present, but, declining, had betaken himself he alone knew where. Mr. Lazarus was short and puny, with carefully trimmed moustache and curly black locks. He wore a flourishing air, and a diamond ring on his right hand, a little finger. A pair of gold-rimmed glasses were balanced on his nose, through which he seemed to beam. About him was an atmosphere of geniality, which was, perhaps, occasionally a trifle overdone. He opened the proceedings in a voice which his late client, who had a keen eye for physical peculiarities, had been wont to describe as a juicy. I suppose it is hardly necessary for me to tell you that it is only in a very limited sense that I can describe myself as the late Mr. Culver's solicitor. And here, since I may have to touch on delicate matters, may I ask, ladies, if I have your permission to speak plainly? You can speak as plainly as you like. This was Mrs. Harmar. Elsie, sitting bolt upright on her chair, said nothing. Mr. Lazarus accepted her silence as signifying acquiescence. Thank you, ladies, thank you. It is always well on these occasions to know what line one is to take, though I assure you I won't speak any more plainly than I can help. It's no secret, to begin with, that the late Mr. Culver employed, in his time, probably more solicitors than any other man in England. Practically he had one in every town in England. One or other of them was always at work for him. He had his own ways of doing business. One of his ways was to regard a solicitor as a sort of thumbscrew to be used whenever necessity required. I fear sometimes there was no absolute necessity. If one of his innumerable debtors was five minutes in arrears, a local solicitor was set at him before he was ten. He was a remarkable man. I was only connected with him in what I would term certain intimate personal matters. I never acted for him in the ordinary, that is, his ordinary way of business. For instance, I drew up for him his will. Perhaps I had better say a will. It's in this envelope. He held up the envelope for them to see. This will was drawn up and duly executed rather more than four years ago. Some nine months ago he told me, in my office, that he had recently drawn up another will, but it has not been found. As I need not tell you, owing to certain painful occurrences, we have only been able to search for it to a limited extent. 
he may have kept it in any one of twenty places to which access has not yet been obtained, and it may yet be discovered. Under these circumstances it is for you, ladies, to say if you would like me to read to you the document which I have in this envelope. Mrs. Harmar was again the first to answer. I don't see any reason why you shouldn't read it. I don't know, Elsie, if you do. Miss Graham's tone and manner could hardly have been more frigid. As you please, I'm indifferent. Mr. Lazarus can read what he likes. Thank you, ladies. I have again to thank you. It was wonderful how thankful Mr. Lazarus was able to be for a very little. He proceeded to read badly what seemed to his auditors to be an interminable farrago of unintelligible phrases. Mrs. Harmar cut him ruthlessly short. Really, Mr. Lazarus, I'm afraid we don't understand very clearly what it is you're reading. Can't you tell us briefly what all that comes to? Certainly, and with pleasure. This will, Mrs. Harmar, practically leaves you everything your uncle died possessed of, with the exception of certain legacies, among them being an annuity of sixty pounds per annum to his servant Alfred Tyrell, you get all. Do you mean to say that my cousin gets nothing? In this will, Miss Graham's name is not mentioned. But it's monstrous, ridiculous, absurd. My dear Elsie, did you ever know anything so silly? But I'm sure you won't imagine that I'm going to rob you. Mrs. Harmar, who had risen excitedly from her seat, was standing in front of Miss Graham, who was calmness personified. Uncle was at liberty to do as he liked with his own. How will you be robbing me by observing his wishes? His wishes? As if anyone cared for the wishes of such a one as he was. Mr. Lazarus, suppose that will were not in existence, what would be the result? If no other was discovered, Mr. Culver would be presumed to have died intestate. His property would be divided, in certain recognized proportions, between his next of kin. Whose property are those sheets of paper you are holding in your hand? That's not an easy question to answer. This document, being the original will, has, after certain formalities have been observed, to be deposited at Somerset House, where it will be kept for purposes of reference. Suppose I were to tear it to pieces and put the pieces on the fire. Then you would have to stand trial on a criminal charge and would, beyond doubt, be severely punished. This is certainly not your property. The law very correctly regards a will, especially when the testator is dead, as a very sacred instrument. But I am not forced to do what that paper says. As regards yourself, no. You need not accept a penny of your uncle's money. Or, having accepted it, you can pass it on to Brown, Jones, or Robinson. But let me point out that it is by no means clear that this will is valid. In other words, that it is your uncle's last will and testament. Perhaps I had better explain exactly what the situation is. You certainly had, as it is, it seems to me to be intolerable. In the first place, let me point out that nothing is more natural than the absence from this document of Miss Graham's name. Why do you say that? You have not the slightest right to say it. It is a question of dates. This will is dated nearly four years ago. At that period, you were unmarried, you lived with your uncle. I doubt if you realize that you had any other relative in the world. That's true, I didn't. You know, Elsie, how secretive he was. Of course I know. More than twelve months after this will was signed, to the best of my knowledge and belief, 
Mrs. Graham wrote from New Zealand to Mr. Culver to call to his attention, for the first time, to the fact of her existence. I remember his telling me that he had lately heard from a sister who he had supposed had been dead for years. I can, if I refer, give you the exact date on which he told me that. Do you see that the omission of Miss Graham's name from this will is explained? When it was drawn, he did not know there was a Miss Graham. We now come to the question of a later will. Miss Graham arrived in England at her uncle's invitation rather more than two years ago. She came a week before my marriage, just in time to be my bridesmaid. I shouldn't have had a bridesmaid if it hadn't been for her. As I have said, some nine months ago he told me that he had made another will. I asked him who had drawn it, and he informed me Messrs. Mirham and Kirby, a firm of the highest standing. When on Saturday I heard of Mr. Culver's tragic fate, I thought it my duty to communicate with them, and they advised me in the strictest confidence what was the purport of that will. They have a draft of the instructions they received from him and on which they acted. What was its purport? It upset this one entirely. Miss Graham was to have far the larger part of the estate. Your share was to be a comparatively insignificant one, and there were various legacies. In whose custody was that will placed? That's the point. Mirham tells me that it was executed in his presence, and that then Culver took it away with him, as he understood, to Timberham, to his house. From observations he has made at different times, I have reason to believe that that will was quite lately in existence. Mirham says that when he was down here so lately as the week before last, he pointed out something in the grounds which he thought might be altered with advantage, that Mr. Culver replied that it would do for his time and that he had no doubt that when Miss Graham came into possession she'd turn the whole place upside down, which seems to suggest that the will was existing then. Obviously, and will shortly be found, so that that's so much waste paper. Is it allowed to ask what I am to have under this other will? Five hundred pounds a year. It was Miss Graham's turn to start from her chair. Five hundred a year, she cried. Then that's a much more ridiculous will than this. She turned to her cousin. Do you suppose I'm going to take practically everything and leave you with such a pittance as that? One can exist on five hundred pounds a year. You can't, and if I've a word to say in the matter, you're not going to try. No one, so far as I'm concerned, need trouble to look for such a will as that, because I'll have nothing to do with it if it is found. Edwin Harmar interposed, speaking for the first time. Gently, you two, gently. Don't you think that this discussion might, with advantage, be postponed? At present we don't know where we are. Let's wait until we do. Since apparently neither of you wishes to take advantage of the other, then you should be able to come to some quite equitable arrangement. In the meantime, may I ask, Mr. Lazarus, if Mr. Culver has left anything behind? My dear sir, he's left an enormous sum of money. A large part of it is out at interest on all sorts of security, in all kinds of places. That part of the estate may take some time to realize. I don't know if either of you ladies could be inclined to carry on the business. What business? That of usury? And such odious usury. Thank you, Mr. Lazarus, you flatter me. This was Mrs. Harmar. Her cousin was even more emphatic. When I think of how he got his money, I feel as if I could not bring myself to touch a penny of it. Indeed. I am not sure that I shall not decline to touch a penny under any circumstances whatever. Let me advise you, Miss Graham, not to be so quixotic. 
Mr. Lazarus, pressing the tips of his fingers together, regarded the ardent young lady with a beaming smile. He went on. It is within my knowledge that my late client had investments of a more normal kind, which could, if necessary, be readily turned into cash, and which would probably produce a sum of at least half a million. I believe I am within the mark when I say that. Though he maintains such a modest establishment, the late John Culver will be proved to have been a very wealthy man, probably something more than a millionaire. And, said Miss Graham to her cousin, out of that mountain of money you're to have five hundred a year. My dear Elsie, rejoined Mrs. Harmar, by that will you're to have nothing. Who's to have five hundred a year, and who's to have nothing? The inquiry came from Rupert Earle, who stood at the open French window. You were good enough to ask me to assist at your little confabulation, but as it was by way of being a family matter, I thought it would be better, perhaps, that I should take a stroll in the woods. I hope that everything's turned out satisfactorily for everyone concerned. Miss Graham, who chanced to be nearest to the window, chose to take the question as being addressed specially to her. Quite, thank you, for me. Will you be so good as to let me pass? Without waiting for him to reply, she swept by him into the grounds. He stood looking after her, then turned to Mrs. Harmar. Which means? The lady shrugged her shoulders. It sounds ridiculous, but honestly I don't know what it means, except that it may mean that it's always risky for a mere man to try to play the part of Providence. May I also go? He moved aside to let her pass, then touched her husband on the arm. Harmar, which mere man does your wife suggest has played the part of Providence, you or me? Chapter 6. The Missing Gentleman A coroner's curiosity is apt to seem insatiable. No one may count on being beyond its reach. Everyone who slept at Timberham on that fateful night became a victim to his desire to know. Mr. and Mrs. Harmar, Miss Graham, and Mr. Earle, each in turn were called upon to be a witness. Obviously unwilling witnesses they were. Much that they would prefer to have kept hidden was dragged into the light yet, wittingly or not, they managed to convey the impression that, in spite of all that the coroner could do, they were concealing much that they might, if they chose, have made known. From the first, Inspector Falcon's theory was adopted by the court. Nothing had been seen or heard of Mr. Walter Palgrave. It did seem extraordinary that a man leaving Timberham in the circumstances he had done could have so completely escaped observation. The one clear fact seemed to be that he had got out of a window in the middle of the night, hatless, coatless, and in a dinner suit. Beyond that, nothing was either known or in the course of the inquest could be discovered. The coroner appeared to have got two alternative explanations into his head. The first was that in the course of his flight he had met with untoward fate, but of that there was not a vestige of proof. In the immediate neighborhood there was no water in which he could have been drowned, no precipice over which he could have fallen. Had he committed suicide, or himself been murdered, there would surely have been something to show for it. There was absolutely nothing. Failing this first explanation, the coroner fell back on what appeared to him to be a possible second. In some of the questions which he put to the witnesses, he more than hinted that Walter Palgrave was still at Timberham, or its immediate neighborhood, or somewhere, to the knowledge and with the connivance of some member or members of John Culver's household. All the witnesses swore that they were in complete ignorance of Mr. Palgrave's whereabouts and of his movements generally, since he was supposed to have retired to rest at two o'clock on that eventful morning. 
yet one felt that the coroner was still unconvinced. The attitude he took up was that it was a sheer impossibility for a gentleman attired as Palgrave must have been to avoid discovery unless he was aided and abetted by someone. It was daylight soon after he left. Someone must have seen him with surprise at the sight of a gentleman tramping the country in such a garb. He had walked more than ninety miles if he had walked to London. He must have halted somewhere for refreshment, where again his costume would have attracted attention. The police had made minute inquiries, yet nothing had been reported. If he had travelled by rail, his appearance would have caused comment. If he had bought other clothes or changed those he had, there seemed to be a dozen obvious reasons why the fact must have become known. He had chambers in town, a house in Wiltshire. Nothing was to be learnt of him at either. He had various relatives. So far as could be ascertained, nothing had been seen or heard of him by them. In any case, it was not easy to see how, without an accomplice, he could have reached them. The coroner made it tolerably clear that, in his opinion, the missing man could not have remained missing had he not had an associate or associates, and that the probabilities were that those associates were members of the Timberham household. Although he did not actually do so, so far as the impression made on the public mind was concerned, he might just as well have named names. As the inquest proceeded, the impression grew stronger that Mr. Walter Palgrave was keeping himself out of the way for a very sufficient reason. One damaging piece of evidence after another came out against him. It was shown that not only had he lived a dissipated and reckless life, but also that he was a discredited and ruined man. All his available property was pledged as security for loans from John Culver. For some time he had been living on those advances. Latterly, Culver had refused to advance more. In his efforts to obtain cash from other sources he had, with a view of concealing the real state of affairs, made statements which might easily have brought him within reach of the criminal law. John Culver, learning this, had called him sharply to book. In consequence, he had uttered threats which in the light of recent events were capable of the most sinister interpretation. On the day before he came to Timberham, he had called at the office in town and publicly declared that if Culver did not let him have more money he would kill him. The fact that he had been drinking did not make matters much better. It was known that the title deeds of Mr. Palgrave's Wiltshire estates were at Timberham. Culver, whose age and infirmities made travelling difficult, and who transacted a great deal of business at his country house, having had his own way of doing things, had a habit of keeping a large number of such documents, at least temporarily, within his immediate reach. Mr. Fincham, Culver's confidential clerk, stated in evidence that the title deeds in question, together with other papers referring to Mr. Palgrave's indebtedness, were kept in the iron box which had been found open, and nearly empty, on the library floor. Search had been made for them everywhere, but they had not been found. Undoubtedly, they had been taken out of the box. It was not strange that the jury, directed by the coroner, brought in a verdict of willful murder against Walter Palgrave. The news reached Timberham by telephone. John Culver had had a telephone installed in his library, and had been used, with its aid, to transact a great deal of business with his offices in different parts of the country. Miss Graham had bribed one of the Timberham stable boys to get on to the telephone at the village post office the moment the verdict was given. She was sitting with Mrs. Harmar in the hall with the library door wide open. Of late, both ladies had evinced a distinct disinclination to sit in the library itself. Suddenly the telephone bell rang out. Miss Graham, throwing down the book she was pretending to read, hurried through the open door. 
When Mrs. Harmar followed her, she was holding the receiver to her ear. "'Is that you, Parsons?' she was asking. "'If you please, miss,' came a voice along the wire, "'the jury's found Mr. Palgrave guilty of willful murder.' Miss Graham waited to hear no more. The receiver fell from her hand onto the table with a crash. The two young women stood staring at each other. It would have been difficult to determine which looked the more troubled. Mrs. Harmar whispered an inquiry. What is it? There was a whispered answer, an echo of the stable boy's own words. The jury's found Mr. Palgrave guilty of willful murder. There was silence, as if each were too deeply moved for speech. Then Miss Graham asked, still in a whisper, What are you going to do? Nothing. The reply was spoken in a louder tone, as if Mrs. Harmar wished the other to understand that loudness was synonymous with firmness. Miss Graham looked at her, then throwing herself across the table, burst into a passion of sobs. For some moments Mrs. Harmar made no attempt to restrain her, possibly because she was not sure that her own feelings were sufficiently under control to trust herself to speak. Then she said, with a touch of asperity, which might have been intended to cover her consciousness of weakness, Elsie, what is the use of behaving like an idiot? What can be done? The verdict of a coroner's jury means nothing, nothing at all. Before you make a fuss, wait till, till the police have found him. By way of answer, Miss Graham, raising herself from the table, rushed weeping from the house. End of chapters 4, 5, and 6